This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Slack. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work into channels where everyone is included, relevant information is in one place, and new team members can easily get up to speed. Learn more at slack.com. It's Monday, April 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, senior analyst Jason Moser and Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Hey, Same hey. to you. We doing well? I think so. All right. As yeah. well as can be expected. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I was out lifting <laughs> flagstones yesterday and like laying out a new path on the side of our house so our dogs don't track a bunch of mud as they come in. So, you know, at 45, I think, I was thinking I might be a little bit more sore, but I'm feeling actually pretty yeah, nice. Looking yeah. spry. Maybe I'm sticking to keeping in shape here. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. And hey, painkillers never hurt. Hey, well, I mean, I'll, I'll remember that for when I get home later today. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk retail. We're going to talk about investing books, but we have to start with the bank of PayPal. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that PayPal has been making moves towards traditional banking, which includes partnering with smaller banks to offer direct deposit, debit cards, and other services. What do you think, Jason? Because this really seems like they are they are going in this direction. Like it, it, this, like there are some we love when companies innovate. And it's interesting how some companies innovate in private. And in the case of PayPal, it's like, nope, we're doing this. We don't care who knows, we're doing this. Yeah, sometimes I like to communicate my feelings via GIF form on Twitter. Every once in a while, that, that GIF just kind of pops in your head, though, that sort of internal GIF. And the one that popped up was just Mr. Burns from The Simpsons going, excellent. Yeah. Because that's what I think of this. I just think this is outstanding in a number of different ways. I mean, this is. Uh, a company we own in million dollar portfolio. It's one I own personally. It's a part of the war on cash basket. And we talk a lot about the competitive advantage in the network, right? And how the network for PayPal is actually a big part of that investing thesis. And, and I think this really just takes it to another level. And, and it shows the, the sort of the position in the value chain that PayPal holds. And and how it behooves other partners in that value chain to to partner up with PayPal and become a part of that network, because that network is already so big and so proven, right? I mean, PayPal has demonstrated, I think, its resilience in this payment space, and and so in in PayPal's position here, you know, they're not actually. A bank, and they're not looking to become a bank, and that's okay. It's kind of like that Holiday Inn commercial, right? I, I'm not a doctor, but I did sleep at Holiday Inn last night. I'm not a bank, but I did sleep at Holiday Inn last night. That's kind of how PayPal's feeling because they're going to partner up with different banking partners in order to uh, help establish a banking relationship. And the idea here is this is not a banking account for everyone. I think the focus really here is primarily on the unbanked, uh, folks who do not have a banking relationship currently. And we've seen these big banks are uh, sort of changing their stance on a lot of the products they're offering consumers, leaning further away from the free accounts and more towards uh, nickel and diming a lot of consumers for fees here and there. And, and this sort of aims to combat that a little bit with a uh, market demographic that doesn't have those checking accounts yet. Yeah, no, they're kind of already acting as a checking account for a lot of people if you have a PayPal balance. So yeah. maybe you roll out into a checking account and definitely with Venmo and the, the younger demographic there, maybe just joining the workforce or, or gaining the need for a bank account. Uh, as you enter your 20s and 30s, so uh, a familiar name for a lot of people um, in that younger demographic, and it, it seems like a logical next step for for quite a few people. And uh, the penetration that Venmo and PayPal already have in the online payment space exceeds Apple Pay and Google Pay and all those, so it's it's got that base already established. 
Well, and that network effect that you're talking about, I think that gives them a lot of optionality, particularly, as you said, Taylor, younger people, Mm -hmm. uh, once they get to a point in life when they are going to be needing, like, oh, I'm actually at the point now, 10 years in the future, whatever, where I am looking to buy a home, and they are looking for you know equity, a line of credit, all that sort of thing. And so, in terms of PayPal, not that they necessarily say, okay, yeah, we want to be Wells Fargo, but without the you know fake accounts. Let's hope so. We want to be Wells Fargo, but with much higher ethical Well, but they're simplifying this for a lot of folks. I mean, like you look at this not just from a domestic perspective, but but go global, right? I mean, the time that I spent living in Egypt and in Kazakhstan and just even a couple of weeks ago in the Bahamas, I mean, you can see everywhere that cash is still uh, the main way uh, that, that purchases occur, right? I mean, there's a lot of cash that changes hands, but now, instead of a business perhaps needing that merchant services relationship with a big bank and bringing in all of that equipment and making sure they have a connection and it's reliable and and then and batching at the end of every night all that this stuff is just very cumbersome now they can just set up a PayPal account and everybody that's going wherever they go everybody's got a phone mm-hmm. and so all you have to do, you don't even need a banking account you have that you have that connected to a card and and then you can pay pretty much wherever you go Utilizing PayPal, more and more places are recognizing that is just a wonderful substitute for that traditional merchant services relationship. It's cost cost effective and it reaches a tremendous opportunity. Well, and where I was going with that was, you know, right now you've got smaller banks that are partnering with them. It's easy for me to imagine down the line, sort of larger financial institutions saying, okay. We need if we don't have a partnership with PayPal right now, we need to seriously consider it just because their network becomes larger mm-hmm. and larger over time. Yeah, for sure. I'm extremely curious to see what small Georgia bank is partnering with PayPal on that check capturing side. In that in that piece that we're talking about, these these little banks kind of remaining anonymous for the most part. Yeah, it's interesting that, I, that they didn't I, I, I mention love, any names. Yeah, I, I just I, there's a part of me that wonders if it's not Ameris Bancor, which is a Company I've talked about a lot here through the years, a small Georgia bank that has gotten a lot bigger over time and really made its way through the financial crisis in good working order. It's gotten a lot bigger here recently because of some acquisitions, and I think they're just relocating their headquarters to Jacksonville, Florida. I wonder if they still are considering that the Georgia bank. I just would be fascinated to know. So anybody in PayPal or investor relations, if like giving up a secret, <laughs> that's it. I, I was going to say, I think you need to tap your uh, your network <laughs> yeah. back in Georgia and, well, I'm and do, be, do a little reconnaissance. Be down there next month, so I'll make sure and ask the appropriate parties. So we've talked before about uh, Costco and their private label brand Kirkland, uh, which has been very successful for Costco over time. And this is an area where Amazon has. Largely uh, stayed out of going the private private label route uh, until now, it seems, because Recode is out with a story about how, after dabbling with private label in very small ways about a decade ago, Amazon has now got somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 plus of their own private label brands that they're doing. How much bigger can this get, do you think? Because, well, there are a couple of things here. One, Taylor, it really does seem like, unlike Costco with Kirkland, Mm -hmm. where everything is branded Kirkland, and so you know, oh, okay, well, that's the Costco Mm -hmm. private label. That does not appear 
be the case here with Amazon. Yeah, no, they have multiple different lines, uh, but they they are starting to put our brand in the search results. So if you if you notice um, in your search results, you're seeing Nike for apparel and all and all these new vendors that they're using. But you also see, um, I think their new athletic line is Peak Velocity. So you'll see uh, our brands associated with that um, to kind of identify. But apparel seems to be. The bigger portion of, of what they're doing here, but now with the Whole Foods acquisition, they're going to have Whole Foods 365 brand um, and and other grocery brands, and then you have Amazon Basics like batteries and phone chargers, and even some uh, some baby um, I don't want to say equipment, but clothes and food and supplements um, under Amazon. Uh, I think Essentials. So. Um, Branching out, and I think they're they're testing and learning, and already turning into several hundred millions of dollars worth of revenue uh, very early on. Well, and for the sake of context, Jason, we've talked before with uh, Jim Senegal, a longtime CEO at Costco. Uh, I remember asking him point blank about how big Kirkland could be. Did he ever envision a Kirkland store on its own? And he just very clearly said, "No. We we look at Kirkland as." Uh, a great move for us, but in terms of percentages, we're looking at that as like we never want that to be more than 20% of overall sales. My hunch is that is not necessarily the case with Jeff Bezos. I wouldn't think so. I feel like with all this Costco and Kirkland talk, we need Matt Greer needs to come in at this point <laughs> of the show and, and offer just some, some testimony. There is there. no bigger fan <laughs> of, of the Kirkland private label yeah. brand than Matt Greer. And, and I mean, that's, I think that, that says a lot because I, I think if you're a retailer and you're not pursuing this strategy at this point, then the world is really passing you right by, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think you know Amazon is is going to benefit from this movement twofold with Whole Foods and with Amazon. Um, there's there's research Nielsen Nielsen research has some interesting data on this that shows that private label growth is actually outpacing that of branded products. Uh, if you look at private label growth dollars spent on private label uh, products, that's a four year. Compound annual growth rate of about 1.7% versus 1.4% for uh, branded products. Now, the interesting thing is that the private label growth is actually accelerating, and the branded label growth is is going the other way. It's it's slowing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, and I think there was a time ago, perhaps, where the perception was at least that private label was uh, for households that were more. Cost conscious, right? Folks that were minding their dollars a little bit more, but but there is data out there that shows actually that the higher the household income goes, the less they actually believe that private label offerings are only for folks on a tight budget. So so there's that stigma that is is disappearing very quickly as well. It's all to say that this is a big market that is getting bigger, and ultimately, from a company's perspective, it, it can ultimately boost margins because yeah, they're offering those products at a little bit cheaper cost, but they're not paying for that brand equity. They're not paying for that marketing. They're not having to communicate a certain message. And with a company like Amazon that really is just communicating that message of becoming the world's most customer-centric company. So no matter what they do, that's that's the goal. That's mm-hmm. the aim. That's the line they're pitching. So it, it just is a natural fit. Yeah, you see Target and Jet.com doing this as well. So uh, certainly bigger stores. But I wonder with Amazon, maybe the, if they start to kind of alienate some of their third-party vendors by competing more directly with some of their products. So that could be an issue there. Seeing that top line shrink a little bit as private label grows. So maybe it's uh, hopefully it's not just a net zero effect. 
product where the the private label just kind of fills in the gaps as the third party vendors get get angry and leave. Um, hopefully, it can be a growth driver rather than just a place filler. And a company that's not a publicly traded company, um, but one that we're familiar with all here, Trader Joe's. Mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, they they've executed on this strategy strategy so well for so long, right? I mean, they they just they have developed a brand name and that that, that brand equity in Trader Joe's. And and so much of that stuff is is under that that label, mm-hmm. and it's it's all quite affordable. Yeah, I, two things pop into my mind. One is uh, maybe a decade or so ago, starting to notice when I was at CVS or Walgreens, insert name of drugstore, looking at medication, and then there would be yeah. whatever was essentially the house brand right next to it, and on the label it mm-hmm. would say, "Hey, this is basically you know this is basically Sudafed." This is the CVS version the of Sudafed, exactly, yeah. you know, and they would just call out on the labeling. Yeah, this is basically the same ingredients, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. The other is uh, my personal favorite uh, private label brand that I've encountered recently, which is Whole Foods has started selling a Spanish red wine <laughs> called Death Metal Red. I saw that, but I didn't realize it was Whole Foods' <laughs> yes. uh, private label. So I was I was in Whole Foods uh, a couple of weeks ago with my son, and he uh, he noticed it because it has a very distinctive label yeah. with, with like a unicorn on it, and it's just it's one of those things that you would just sort of look at and go, oh, this uh, this is not necessarily it's a gag what gift. I, yeah, it kind of seems like that, and then I just sort of looked it up and found two things: one. That this was a private label that was created for Whole Foods, and two, it actually got pretty good ratings yeah. in sort of the, the the wine community. So, anyway, thanks to Slack for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work in easily searchable channels. So, whether it's projects, interests, teams, or by office, you've got all the right people who are always in the loop. You've got all the relevant information in one place, and new team members. Can get easily up to speed. We planned today's episode of Market Foolery on Slack. We've been using Slack at The Motley Fool for years, and it was super easy just to create a small private channel with just me, Jason, and Taylor, and just share ideas. We love Slack. Reduces emails because God knows how many emails we would have had to send back. And <laughs> it forward. actually does, impressively so. <laughs> no, it yeah, yeah, it really does. does. It makes it easy to share files, whether it's documents or links to articles. It works with Google Drive and Salesforce and all these other apps, over a thousand apps that you can tailor it to work with. And the mobile app for Slack is great, whether you're an Apple person using the iOS or you use Android. So check it out Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com from McKenna Hassey at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. She writes Hi, Chris. Quick question. If you could put a book in the hands of every member of the Drake Investment Club, what would it be? I'm looking for something interesting, applicable, etc. that could be helpful to any investor, or any level of investor. It's a great question. For my dad's alma mater. Is it? Yeah. Have you I follow her on Twitter? I mean, she is really doing well in her uh pursuit of of I guess sort of just her passion, what race car driving is, yeah. some some yeah. level and she just is man, it seems like every week she's just Killing it! Yeah, <laughs> congratulations. One McKenna. of the reasons I like following McKenna on Twitter is because it reminds me of um, how tired I am. <laughs> she, 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 it's it's entirely possible that she never sleeps. Um, we'll just go around the table. I'm gonna. Th- uh, I'm going to start just by throwing out a, a free book that anyone can get, um, and it is the Motley Fool Guide to Investing for Beginners. It is a, it's an ebook, and you can just get it by going to our podcast center, uh, which is at fool.com/podcasts, 
Uh, so go to fool.com slash podcast, and just on the right-hand side, you'll see a link right there. You can download uh, the Motley Fool Guide for investing to investing for beginners, uh, and it's free. So uh, so that's one. Jason, what do you got? Um, so it's a Good question. I'm glad she asked it. And whenever I get this question, I immediately start thinking about books that are right in line with our investing style. Because I think that there is something that we have to at least acknowledge, and that we think about things a bit differently than probably a lot of the financial media does out there. And and so we are a we take a much longer timeline, more business focused, focusing on leadership, competitive advantages, and things like that. I actually got two books that I think can help from from those perspectives there. Robert Hagstrom's The Warren Buffett Way, pretty easy read, and it's not like a big long history of Warren Buffett, but it's it's a good focus on sort of his way of investing and why it matters to him and how it works, and and I think it's easy to incorporate in our everyday investing life. And then Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street, I think, is is one that we talk about often here. Peter Lynch, a fund manager who has an exceptional track record, and again, his track record I think is because he approaches investing much the way we do, or rather, maybe we approach it much the way he does. <laughs> um, business focused. I think there's that quote out there that uh, you know this isn't a, a, a lottery ticket, right? It's it's a piece of a business, and so uh, they're a little bit dated, perhaps, but the principles are sound, mm-hmm. and I think you can bring that that style of investing forward to today. They're really easy reads, fun reads, and extremely helpful. Yeah, one up on Wall Street. It's I think the first investing book I ever read. Just digging through boxes of my dad's old books. And yeah, and they're just relatable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. not like you could sit there and, and, and you know recommend some Benjamin Graham text. I mean, that's just not relatable. <laughs> it's not it's not pleasant reading for most people. Um, so nothing against you're not Benjamin, George right? Soros is the, uh, the intelligent. Investor is kind of how Buffett sort of framed his view on the world. And so I think you're going to get a lot of that out of just reading the Warren Buffett way, and it's more fun. Right on. I like William Thorndike's The Outsiders, um, a book that kind of started as um, a project where William Thorndike was going to make a presentation at at a conference and then turn it into an eight year long project of uh, interviewing everyone associated with eight different CEOs that excelled throughout history, Um, Warren Buffett being one of them, of course, but the the key. Ways that these guys were connected, and, and Gal um, with Catherine Graham from Washington Post, but uh, master capital allocators and outperformed their peer group uh, by leaps and bounds because of that, and uh, really um, kind of brought share buybacks into the fore. And um, but they excelled at it in terms of buying in large chunks at opportune times rather than pre-scheduled share buybacks like you see these days. Uh, one other book I'll throw out there, which uh, last time I checked is not free, is uh, The Big Short by Michael oh, yeah. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And the movie is, is is great. I enjoyed the movie a great deal. But uh, as is almost always the case, you get more from the book than you do from the movie. And particularly for uh, college students who are in an investment club. And so they uh, more, I assume any college student who is in an investment club. Is very seriously considering this as a career option, and so the reason I would recommend The Big Short is because one of uh, the things that is illustrated in that book so brilliantly by Michael Lewis is the risks associated with groupthink, mm. and not only those risks, but just how difficult it is for any professional investor to fight against that tide. Uh, because so often the people who are, for lack of a better word, the stars of this book, are the people who are openly ridiculed for most of the book because they are the real life people who say, "No, actually, America's housing 
uh, is is propped up, and uh, it's all going to come crashing down. And time after time after time, they are mocked, laughed out of the room. And they bet their livelihoods on it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think for for any for any investor, but particularly for any young investor, um, it's it's a I think a good illustration of just how hard it can be to be an independent thinker in the professional world of investing. Like they say, investing is just really one big disagreement, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, Jason Moser, Taylor Markman. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. You got it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.